Welcome to another episode of the Examine Life podcast, where we take some of life's thorniest questions and deconstruct them in a way that is pragmatic and philosophical so that you can lead a more productive, examined, and joyful life. Today's question is, are young people okay? And I am joined by Kyla Scanlon. How's it going, Kyla? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I am... I have been such a fan of of your writing for a long time, so I'm I'm fanboying a bit <laughs> in, in amidst this interview. But I'm going to try to keep a straight face. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. For those who don't know you, how do you how do you how do you, how do you genuine question? How do you introduce yourself and what you do? Oh gosh, yeah, it takes a couple of sentences. Um, so yeah, I'm Kyla. Uh, I do social media, so TikTok, Instagram, write a newsletter, have a podcast, have a YouTube. I'm also a contributor for Bloomberg Opinion, um, as well as a podcast host for Wealth Simple. And then I am writing a book called In This Economy with Penguin Random House that will be out in. May, it'll be out in May, May now. Yeah, I got pushed back. Oh. <laughs> so May 28th, yeah. Amazing. Can't wait to get my hands on it. And yeah, I, I think to, to translate, I, we were talking earlier, you know, I'm a young Gen X and you're, a, uh, to me, you're a voice of Gen Z and younger. Is that, is that a, a fair-ish representation? <laughs> uh, I hesitate to be the voice of a generation, <laughs> but um, I am Gen Z, yeah. Gen Z. And you... For our listeners who don't know, uh, are are like a financial. To me, you're a financial commentator in a way that is so modern, so unique, so different. Cross cross platform. You don't. I don't think you have a boss per se. I mean, you work with different uh, <laughs> platforms and podcasts and so on. And you're prolific. Uh, and so it's just uh, you know preparing for this interview. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> Where, where do I even begin? And you have this, this uncanny ability to bridge stodgy kind of terms that would put me to sleep, you know, like usually around Fed policy uh, <laughs> into the, you know, the everyday aspect of, of life, the economy, how, how young people live. So let's uh, dive into our question. Before we dive into the question, for those of you who are interested in any of our group coaching cohorts. If you want to reevaluate your relationship with money, think about how you, how the role of influence and persuasion in your life. We've got uh, group coaching cohorts. Sign up at radreads.co slash coaching. So are young people okay? And mm -hmm. selfishly, so I have a 10-year-old and a seven-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. So um, they're still, they're still my babies, but I'm, you know, I'm very much in the world uh, of the internet. And I thought I would um, start with this um, one of the one of the videos you made about uh, this viral TikTok video about a woman lamenting the nine to five mm -hmm. job. I suspect most people have not seen this video listening to this. So mm -hmm. if you if you recall that video um, and some of the associated commentary and the, that could kick us off. Yeah, yeah. So it was I think she had just started her first job. And she was talking about, she didn't hate her job, but she hated the nine to five, like the structure of the job because she didn't feel like there was a world outside of that. Like, you know, she commuted, she worked, she commuted, and there wasn't really a lot of free time. 
And so she made this TikTok video talking about that. And of course, um, all these people were like, well, she just doesn't understand hard work. And she just, she's going to have to wake up one day and realize that the world is hard and things suck. And um, I wrote this response piece to it, you know, talking about how we should probably wish for a better future and that Mm -hmm. the nine to five is essentially a relic from the industrial revolution. And a lot of jobs don't require that working framework, it actually goes against a lot of people's chronotypes. Like when they work best is not necessarily nine to five. It might be morning, like 4 a.m. to, I don't know what, however many eight hours would be, or maybe it's not even eight hours of straight work. And so the whole piece was just sort of talking about the way that we think about work can change. And like, that should be something that we think about exploring, especially as we develop new technology that enables us to like have, um, you know, video podcast recordings and um, interact with each other via technology. We should think about how we can leverage that into changing our work style as well. So I was fascinated by that because I think I actually, I think I saw one of your tweets where it's like the older generation, it's just, it's just human nature. It's like older generation shits on younger generation. Mm -hmm. And so I don't even remember. It's like, no one talks, I'm Gen X. No one talks about Gen X. We're like forgotten in the conversation of generations. So that's, uh, you know, I'll cope with that separately. But I do, you know, as a Gen X who deep works and interacts with a lot of millennials and Gen Zs, I feel like there's this kind of constant narrative. Like if you look at kind of the main comments to that video, it's like, you know, this is what hard work looks like. You're going to have to suffer. Grow up, kid. You're so entitled, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just don't believe that t- to be true about younger generations. Um, how do you, I, I know that you kind of speak in the opposite direction to older, you know, boomers and Gen Xs with, you know, different economic topics that you cover. How do you reconcile this kind of intergenerational (laughs) warfare of sorts? Yeah. I mean, like, why do I think it's happening? Yeah. Why do you think it, why do you think it's happening? It is, is there, are there kernels of truth to it? What's, what are people completely missing? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason that it's happening is because of technology. Like a lot of the older generation um, doesn't understand aspects of social media, doesn't understand aspects of you know, why people would want to work from home rather than going into the office. There's this New York Times piece that talked about how boomers got most of their social life and therefore most of their validation from going into the office. Mm. That's where all their buddies were. That's where they would, you know, talk and hang out. And for younger generations, um, they just think about that structure a little bit differently. And especially because the promise of work has changed. I wrote this piece with Fast Company kind of talking about that. Um, you know, you don't really work for the same company for 40 years. And there are all these alternative career paths that you can go on, like making videos about the economy and things mm-hmm. like that. So I think that the older generation doesn't quite understand that shift in career path and then doesn't mm-hmm. understand the shift in the desire of a change in working style. And I hesitate to call it generational warfare um, Mm -hmm. because I think that there are groups within each that kind of understand each other. There's boomers that aren't so resistant to the idea of change. Um, But I think, you know, for Gen Z, they sort of look at the older generations and there's an incredible amount of wealth trapped Mm -hmm. in the older generations. And of course, you could argue that they deserve that. Like they've worked really hard. They've been on earth way longer. Therefore, um, that's just how it is. But um, I do think the there's a lot of difficulty with the beginner mode, like getting your foot on that ladder 
it's mm. it's hard for the younger generation in a lot of ways, uh, whether that be because of the housing crisis, you know, childcare crisis crisis makes it difficult to have children um, for some people. And I just think that it just feels like resources are not maybe as equitably distributed as people mm. would like. And that uh, does come down to age group differences. Yeah. Do you think um, this this question about um, kind of beginner mode feels harder? Is there a way, if you put your economist hat on, is there a way to kind of evaluate, like comparatively evaluate beginner mode across different like time period cohorts? And as you said, like the, the ones that are glaring, right? Um, housing prices, childcare costs, I, I would presume you would also throw in educational education costs and costs of college debt. Um, as an economist uh, and someone who studies the economy, is there like, are there kind of point in time comparisons across that to, to, to you know, substantiate or, or to like demonstrate that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of comparisons that will compare millennials now to where boomers were at the same age. And millennials are catching up, which is great. But um, for a long time, boomers were ahead at the same age that millennials are. They had more wealth, they had a house usually, um, had more stability in a lot of ways. Um, so in like, you can look at other data points and like there was a piece from I think the Financial Times showing how many more people are living with their parents versus living alone. I saw that. And that may not be a bad thing, right? Like it's not a bad mm -hmm. thing to stick around, um, but it does mean that you're starting your life later. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the big thing is that people are putting off these big life decisions later and later in life. Um, yeah. And normally you would kind of start your life right away, but because uh, it's more expensive to do so, you have to find alternative paths. Yeah. Do you think that um, in terms of the, the opportunities that are available. So if, you know, if I look, if I like put my college graduating hat on, it was like, oh, well, so many of the traditional industries are still available, still hiring Wall Street, medicine, law, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's this whole other, like when I, I graduated college in 2001, like you went to work, if you wanted to work at tech, it was a big tech, it was Microsoft or Sun Microsystems, <laughs> right? Um, and maybe Oracle. Um, and then kind of this whole kind of internet economy in addition to, to all that. Is there, like, if you look at the opportunity, like, like so we were, we've discussed, like, kind of the cost structure makes beginner mode hard. Has the opportunity set um, grown to match the cost structure, shrunk? Like, is there some kind of, like, is there a way to look at them one in respect to the other? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, yeah, there's more college educated people. People are able to get jobs um, in industries that never existed, uh, similar to like 2001, right? Like there's always new industries being created, always old jobs being destroyed. Um, so potentially, yeah, there are different opportunities. I would say that a lot of people would argue that um, uh, wealth inequality has increased, um, which so like a wage that is a beginner wage doesn't take you as far as it used to but mm. yeah i mean there's plenty there's like the problem with everything all of the time is that like there's good and bad that comes with yeah. it and um it's not a question of like if the bad overshadows the good it's just like do they exist alongside of each other and so yes there are um opportunities that have grown 
out of out of this and companies that have flourished and people who have made you know like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year product managing at Google. Um, so there's there's opportunity, but um, I think the big worry is that the opportunity is not equally distributed. Mm -hmm. Do you see um, on that on this the issue of housing? So we. You know, we have we have young kids. You know, I, I I make a good living and invest reasonably, and so I've my wife and I have already spoken about the con. We've already had the conversation. They're like, you know, at some point there's going to be money left over, and like the we don't really think about um, like leaving a kid, our kids an inheritance or like whatever. Like I'm more of the die with zero philosophy in, in that regards. But we're like, we would love to help them buy their first home. And so, I mean, mm -hmm. my, my kids are 10 and 8, right? So that's a decision that we're already like entertaining, you know, mentally. That's 20 years, you know, 15 to 25 years from now. Is there, I mean, I know this, right? There's an entire podcast based on this question. But like in this question of housing, what, like, what's, is there, a, what's the way out for younger younger besides like parents helping kids mm -hmm. buy their first homes i mean that's kind of the path that a lot of parents are taking and it's great if you're able to provide that to your kids but it goes back to the point that i was talking about earlier with the bifurcation like a lot of parents can't afford that yeah. and therefore their kid does kind of get left behind a, a certain amount um yeah and so like you know the housing crisis at large is an issue of supply uh, so there's just not enough homes for the people that want the homes, especially in cities that people want to live in. So it's really a question of like, how do we redesign policy and redesign zoning um, uh, to make it so homes can be built? Uh, I was um, riding my bike yesterday and I was, you know, we were on this bike path and I was looking at all the different apartment buildings and they're like so stark and this is a tangent, but like they're so stark and square and boring to look at. I do think like, we owe it to ourselves to build more beautiful housing as we build uh, housing. I think that would be creatively quite inspiring for people to live in something that's beautiful. Um, but yeah, I think the housing crisis is an issue of supply and demand. And then there's of course like boomers just kind of rattling around and, you know, four bedroom homes where it, that might be time for a millennial who wants to have kids to move in, but the boomers are holding on to it because why wouldn't they, you know, they're able to lock in a really low mortgage rate. Mortgage rates are, sky high right now is six and a half percent seven percent um and so you kind of have these two groups you have the people who are able to get into a house pre-pandemic you know sort of lock in that golden two percent and then you have people who were not able to and therefore it's more difficult to finance a home and then you have the people who are going to inherit some sort of wealth some sort of um, asset from their parents and then you have those who aren't and that gets yeah. into the question of inheritance tax which is quite unpopular but yeah you had mentioned kind of social media. Uh, you're talking about kind of the return to the office. It's funny. I was talking to someone on Wall Street yesterday. And I said, so are you telling me basically like the five day in the office is back in, in midtown New York? He's like, totally back. <laughs> I was like, wow. And to me, you know, I used to work in that uh, regime and I'm like, guys, we had an opportunity. <laughs> we had like the best shot that we're going to have to kind of try something new. And, you know, what are we three, three years out of the pandemic? It's like, yep, just like just back to uh, back to the back to the way it was. Um, but you had made a comment about kind of the, the role you said um, in the past, people would make the majority of their friendships in the office. And now it's it's all over. It's all on social media. And so 
I'd love for you to like, what are the like not obvious ways that social media kind of permeates into, I don't know, like we get, you get to pick a topic like work or maybe the economy is like too broadly, but um, you know, you said you, you've been studying different effects of social media and I'd love to kind of your take on like, what's, what are the, the like second, third order effects of generations building entire social lives off of social media? That's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Um, it's bad. Yeah, oh, I yeah. thought you were like, my question's bad. I'm no, like, it's too big. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's not a bad question. No, I think the, the social media has created a lot of issues for people. Like, I think there's a lot of value in building community online. Like I have made a whole career by just yeah. being online. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think there's this book called Present Shock by Douglas Rushkoff. And he talks, it was written in 2010-ish. And he talks, he was very, he knew, kind of knew what was going to happen, I think. Um, but he talks about like how disorienting it is to be online and to like be talking at a computer screen and sort of not like, like I think it's like 95% of our um, language is conveyed through body language. And so mm-hmm. when we're talking to each other via text, when we're talking to each other via video, um, you miss out on a lot of the human experience. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's like a large part of the cognitive dissonance that we're seeing where it's like, well, you know, I have these dopamine hits from people retweeting my tweet or liking my Instagram post, but I feel empty. And of course, like I'm biased because like my life is social media. So like I might feel that a little bit more viscerally and align to that a little bit more than somebody who isn't online would align to it. But I do think largely when you talk to people who use social media, they will talk about some sort of feeling of isolationism or feeling like they're a little bit disconnected or feeling like they're being sucked in by the negativity. So I think social media is an incredible tool but as we were talking about a little bit earlier, there's good and bad with everything. Yeah. I think the bad of social media is the fact that we really like kind of need to be around each other. And I don't mm. know if that means going into the office. I think it means third places, like just mm. sort of being around each other and being creative. Like I think going back into the office is more of a control tactic um, because you'll still kind of be isolated in your cubicle, right? But, um, but I do think that like the more that we can be around each other from – like uh, that third place perspective. So like libraries and coffee shops, um, that's sort of where the community value comes in because we're missing out on that in a large Mm. way right now with social media. Like it's not great for our brains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is that obviously that kind of COVID exacerbated that. Do you see um, kind of in in your peer group or in, in kind of younger, younger adults, young Adults who are younger, not young adults. Uh, do you see? Do you see like? Because again, this is where like I'll, I'll my you know I'm forty, I'm almost forty five, so I'll state my age. But there's you know like a kind of the retro, the retroness of yeah. you know bookstores are back in vogue and like in my, you know people buying vinyl. Like my daughter wanted to buy my ten year old is like can I get a, a record player and buy That's Kendrick cool. Lamar's you know Good Kid, Mad City. Her cousin, yeah. her older cousin had it. Like, is there some version of that as it relates to social interaction, as it relates to social, you know, the rebellion against or, you know, the nostalgia against, you know, with respect to social media occurring right now? Yeah. I mean, I think people are very tired of the influencer marketing. Like, we're selling the lives and the skins of, like, these people. 
And I think people are starting to realize that that is not always um, authentic. And so there's this craving for authenticity. There's a craving for trust. And so people are really desiring to be a defluence. Like there's this video on TikTok of a guy who was like obsessed with vacuum cleaners. Like that was like his whole thing. Like, you know, people get into trains, like he was a vacuum cleaner guy. And he was just like, this is the absolute best vacuum cleaner that you can buy for your money. And it was like a $70 vacuum cleaner. And it got like 4 million likes. People were were like, yes, I just want the straight facts. And I think the reason that bookstores are coming into vogue and like record players, like the sound on a record player is unlike anything that you'll ever experience. Like it is incredible, right? And it's designed to be incredible. Right now we have products and technology that for just the purposes of the company is there is planned obsolescence. Like yeah. Apple's business model relies on you buying a new iPhone and there's nothing wrong about that it's just the business and so people are looking at these products though that don't have the planned obsolescent aspect and they're meant to last a long time and they're meant to be really good and i think there's kind of that craving for something that isn't going to just disappear like people want real things um and so uh, i think that's sort of like what we're seeing with with some parts of um social media and the way that people are consuming it is there's a desire to um have things that are real yeah you think that because I, I, being older it's like the the coming of age of the influencer to me feels like heavy instagram like <laughs> kind of before videos like kardashian style um and then that has kind of morphed but like that style has kind of moved over to more of the like TikTok. I'm not, I've, I'm on it, but I don't really get it. Um, but more, <laughs> um, it just feels more that it feels more real and whether it's more real, it feels more real than a Kardashian, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's like, what, what is that? Plastic, what does that yeah. even mean? Yeah. Um, and do you, do you see that even, I guess with the vacuum cleaner, is that like, what do you, how do you see this kind of concept of influencers you know, because whether you like the word or not, like you and I are a version of influencers and in that we have platforms, we speak and some of the things we say have downstream influence on people. I, don't, I hate the term. I, I suspect you probably don't like the term uh, either. Um, I guess what, where do you see, how do you see the evolution of the kind of influencer landscape? Because, uh, and, and let me just add to that. On the flip side, you know, I'm sure you've seen all the studies, just like all the um, statistics, like, 50, you know, 50% 50, 50 of kids between the age of 12 and 18 want to be YouTubers, want to be TikTok influencers and so mm -hmm. on. So how do you see that collision? Yeah, there's, um, yeah, I don't like that term either. Um, but yes. yeah, I've been called a finfluencer before and I was like, okay, oh, <laughs> right. um, but it's, it's true. There's an element of hypocrisy to what I'm saying. Um, and that goes back to the point about good and bad, like social media can be good. I think, especially if you're learning or using it to learn, um, which is what I try to do with my content. But, um, I think like the direction of the influencers, it's still going to exist. Like there's still going to be an element of authenticity. Um, but I think there is almost an influencer apocalypse happening where you have, um, Ooh. people like Alex Earl, who's great. Like she's very, she seems great. She, this is not a call on her person, but, um, people realize that she's like not a reality that they, they exist in. And so I think people are just going to seek out, um, those that they align with and part of the issue with um content in general is that people have to make it 
And so I, I don't know what the influencer marketing world will look like. I just know that people are trying to figure out how to position products differently. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the Michael Sarah CeraVe campaign is kind of an example of like what brands are trying to do. So they hired the celebrity Michael Sarah, who's um, from Superbad, I think, that movie. Okay. Um, he's like this goofy millennial dude who millennials love. But and they just have all these pictures of him carrying around CeraVe bottles around Los Angeles, Those uh, which are is the, the type of like moisturizer. Yeah, it's, okay, it's yeah. like it's actually it's, I use it actually. Um, it's yeah, very good. I use it too. Um, yeah, it's it's very good product. But um, the advertising campaign is just him carrying the bottles. It's not anything about the effectiveness of it as a lotion. Like there's nothing about the actual product success. It's just this like guerrilla warfare style campaign of Michael Sarah carrying around like like 50 bottles in a bag around the, uh, the streets and then also signing CeraVe bottles inside the grocery store. And so they employed these influencers to like hype up the campaign and be like, oh my God, this is so weird. Like what's Michael Sarah doing selling CeraVe? And so that's kind of like what we're seeing with um, the shift in marketing. I don't know if yeah. it's necessarily influencers. It's like they're not selling the product, they're selling the story. And the weirder that you can make the story, like the more successful the campaign is going to be, like the more that the more shock value that you can have behind whatever you're trying to do um, matters. There's this quote from Liquid Death, which is that canned water where it's, everyone's like, why would I ever drink water in a can? Mm-hmm. But it's like a very successful product. And what he said is our competition is not other brands in the category. It's other things that you see in your social feed. That's our competition. Oh. And so now like the advertising of the influencer world, the advertising of everything, everything is everywhere all at once, right? Like we're experiencing the past, the present and the future all at the same time. And so I think influencer marketing is going to have to figure that out too. Um, and I don't know what that will look like. I know that I kind of went off on a couple of tangents there, yeah. but it just goes to show like how confusing it is because like these are real people um, and like, do we always need to be marketed to? And like how tired are people going to be of being marketed yeah, uh, to constantly, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, there, there's so many. I think about the marketing thing because as someone who creates content, yeah. you know, I, you know, at the back, similar to you, I for me, it's less, it's less about education, more about provocation, like getting people to think about things. Um, that being said, I make money. I I do coaching. I have co- so like there is there is an ask somewhere in the feed of content. I try to make it respectful, wide, and so on. But at the end of the day, there is still an ask, and it just you know it almost feels to me like if I go through to any social media feed, it's just like oh my god, it's just it, whether it's a company or a person, it's like someone wants me to buy shit. <laughs> like it's just and it's almost like. I stop, I had to stop, you know, I, I'm in the self-improvement genre. And so, you know, all the cold plungy, you know, bro content, mm. I'm just like, you know, part of me follows it because I just, I should know what's going on in my somewhat adjacent peer group. But another part of me is just like, God, make it fucking stop. Do you know like, what trad wives are? Have you heard of that? I, I've heard the term, I've, I, a little bit, but go ahead. I know the audience has not. Well, so trad wives are like, <laughs> it's kind of this return to the 1950s housewife. Like the yep. lady stays at home and takes care of like 17 kids and the guy goes and works. And it's very popular amongst a certain crowd online. Um, Ironically it, or genuinely? 
genuinely. Genuinely. Okay. Yeah. But like in these um, people will do this lifestyle and they'll post it all to social media. So like one example is Ballerina Farm. She has like a $20,000 stove um, and everyone's like, oh my God, she's living so authentically. But they have like, you know, a bunch of um, help and they have a bunch of servants that are actually running the, the farm. Um, and it kind of reminds me of what you were saying about the cold plunge and kind of like that hustle bro mentality is people are doing that for clicks. Like they're doing yeah. that sort of thing for engagement. Like they're people, um, women fought kind of hard to not have to be trad wives. Yes. And, uh, now we're returning to that, but we're only returning to that because it's monetizable. We're yeah. only returning to that because you can sort of paint this story and this narrative around it. And I think hustle bro culture is really similar where it's like, I'm going to like that Brian Johnson guy. Um, yeah. he, like it's, it's very similar where it's like, I can make money off being the most extreme end of the distribution. And so that's no, what I'll, no. what I'll do. Um, and it's impossible to avoid that content because yeah. I'll, them rewards it because it is so extreme and because it is so reactive and people want to respond to it and so what does someone like how does a someone who is bombarded with that content like what are their <laughs> options to stay sane um so there's this other uh, article and i'm gonna forget this guy's name but it was so good and he was talking about how teens are experiencing social media and it's like okay you know is the answer to keep the teens off social media and the only way that that would work is if all the teens got off social media, because if you're a teen and all your friends have social media, you feel just as bad as they do, like, cause you're left out. So like there's yeah. this fear of missing out that happens when you're not using social media too. So you're just as down. Um, of course I think you're a little bit happier, but you know, you're, you're still down a little bit, especially if you're a teen. And so I think that's the big question is like, well, you know, does is, is it, is it screen limits? Like, do you use it for an hour a day? Do you not engage? Do you, um, only tune into your friends' feeds. You use it for what it was originally meant to be used for, which is like connecting with people. Um, and I think that's the big question is like, how do we actually integrate this into our lives? Because right now for a lot of people, it's taking over. Um, yeah. And they're totally missing out on a lot of real world experiences. And this is a small segment of the population. Like there's a bunch of normal people who are out there just posting and then maybe checking it a couple of times a week. Yeah. Um, but then there's the chronically online group, which a lot of people are starting to fall into. Yeah. I think about that because we, um, we had this with Roblox with our daughter. And I was just kind mm -hmm. of just, it was more like I was fighting the fight to know that I could kind yeah. of win the fight. Because I, I think Roblox is pretty harmless, but it got to the point where everyone in the class had Roblox except my daughter. Yeah. And so she, the FOMO was not even about Roblox; it was just being left out. And right. my wife and I talk about we're like, oh, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do the same with phones, but the same thing is gonna play out. It's like you, you, it's gonna be just as painful to be mm -hmm. the one, you know, the odd kid out. Um. So I, uh, God, I don't. I don't look for it. Do you remember how old you were when you got your phone? First I was old. I was way older than everybody else. I think I uh, was 14. So like okay. still pretty young. And yeah. yeah and this but... was also a lot, you know, like the, <laughs> everything's gotten more compressed. Yeah. Like they're second yeah. graders with iPhones now. Yeah. Like um, this was um, more 12, 12 years ago is mm -hmm. when I got my first phone. Um, and so like that must, that was, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to do math. 
is it 2012? Is that right? Is that 2012 was 12, 12 years ago? 12 years ago, yeah. Yeah, so it was 2012. So like phones were very popular. Some people, the big thing for me was like I had a flip phone and everybody else mm-hmm. had the iPhone. Um, and that was hard, uh, right? Because of course there's social signaling that comes. Yeah. And now everybody just has an iPhone. It doesn't matter. But like there's mm. social signaling that comes with these things. But you're right, like they are getting them younger and younger. And um, I don't have kids, so I can't even relate mm-hmm. it to like, you know, it's probably easy to plop them in front of an iPad and just be like, okay, and like, okay. go like hang out. Um, and I get that. Yeah I, yeah, I get that. Yeah. What about um, kind of the the role of consumerism in it all, right? Mm. And you know, we talked about the feed just being this like giant engine of mon- like buy this, you know, whether it's influencers or or corporations or Michael Sarah, just like <laughs> buy, 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 buy. Yeah. And, you know, I, and this is like somewhat of a tangent, but I feel like you'd be like the perfect person to talk to about this with. I was at my gym the other day and my friend has these kind of like fake CrossFit um, sneakers. Like they've been like, ri- they rip off, you know, Alibaba rips off, you know, the, the Reebok version and they're 40 bucks and he loves them and they're just as good. And so he has these CrossFit shoes and, but they're white and they're dirty. And, but they're perfect, but they're, they're just, and he wants to get them clean. So he goes to look for a cleaner, like a shoe cleaner. Um, like he wants to pay someone to clean, clean his shoes basically. And he, he can only find someone that will charge 40 bucks. for them. And <laughs> so he's like, fuck, he's like, I could push a button and a brand new clean pair will show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, or mm-hmm. I can like go through all this labor, do the right thing, which is not mm-hmm. like throw another pair of perfectly good shoes into a landfill and spend uh and i feel like people have some version of that dilemma like all the number of random things i buy from amazon that are just like ah i could just fix this thing but it's just so much easier to push this button yeah and so i I mean there's so much baked into that but i'm i wonder if it's like what what that kind of what what you read from that situation and what it exemplifies to you Mm Um, so there's a, a word for that. It's the replacement economy okay. <laughs> uh, rather than the repair economy. So like part of the issue is labor has gotten quite expensive yeah. for these things that like we would like to be a lot cheaper. And of course, there's a whole conversation to be having about like how expensive labor should be and like how we value people, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but the problem is it has become much more cheap to simply just buy a new thing and, and buy something that is maybe like not as high quality, but you know, you can just replace it. Um, so I do that too. Like, it's just like, oh, I'll just get a new one <laughs> um, rather than trying to replace it. And so, yeah, that's a big thing that a lot of people do because it is cheaper most of the time. Um, you, and like it ties back into the concept of plans obsolescence too. Yeah. It's like washers and dryers. People are like, oh, you know, it's so much money to fix it i'll just get a new one um so that's kind of yeah the the idea with the replacement economy is that people are just going to replace rather than repair yeah Mm -hmm. and that in part that is like an engine of consumption like it's Mm. an an engine of gdp growth right and so yeah consumer spending is 70 percent of gdp (laughs) so it's good that people are out there spending. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it's an example of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. And that's just the way that the economy grows. I get a lot of um, criticism for saying things like that, like this is just the way that it is. Um, but it, that's true. Is like, this is just the way that the economy is. Uh, and we, 
there's a lot of room to like rethink that. Like a lot of the GDP growth that we experienced um, in the most recent print was from manufacturing spending from the government. Um, So the government investing in certain products projects has helped grow the economy. And I think that there's more like lasting Things like that that could be like chip better. makers, that kind of, or just the exactly like broader the chip manufacturing. Act. Yep, yep, yep. Got it. Mm-hmm. Why do people give you? Why do they criticize you for saying that's just the way it is? Because <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, you don't, you're not recognizing the problems with it. Like, you should just be addressing how bad it is. And I think mm-hmm. like that's true. Like that's valid. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's also an element of accepting how the system works and understanding how the system works. And that's when you can start to evoke change. Like if you're just bemoaning the current state of affairs, that's not very useful to anybody. Um, And so like a lot of times I'll just say like, this is how it is um, and we can make it better, but like we have to accept the current state of affairs before we begin to proceed right and you have to understand um like why it's bad right rather than just being like it's bad do you think that um what are the lowest hanging and this is we're, we're leaving my do- domain of expertise so I, i'll just plant that as a as a fair warning but like in terms of kind of the lowest let's the the, the lowest hanging fruit in terms of like economic policy what do you think do you have do you do you have a thought or opinion or or ideas of what what that is i mean social safety net <laughs> i think yeah. that would do a lot of really good stuff uh we right now there's a bunch of layoffs happening specifically in metal management tech and i think there has to be like some sort of retraining program for those people uh there's uh, this new york times article that was talking about how the loneliness crisis isn't real which i don't agree with that premise but they were saying that part of the reason that people feel so bummed and like sad and angry is because they feel left behind. And so I think the lowest hanging fruit in terms of economic policy and rebuilding trust, which I think is the most important thing to focus on from a policy level, is establishing um, a more direct connection to people um, Uh, and letting them know that the government is there and listening and like is here to provide support just in case things go sour. Uh, because right now that's that's not how a lot of people feel at all because that that's not true Um, like there isn't that that net at all so and is that is that net obviously the obvious categories like unemployment benefits and healthcare, Mm -hmm. but you also uh, retraining is one any other any other components in that i think the student loan debt situation should have been figured out a little bit differently um, yeah, I think things like that are important. I, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, establishing baby bonds. Like, mm. uh, if you look at one of my favorite, remind charts, me what the, how those work. Yeah. Uh, so let me talk about this chart, and then I'll talk okay. about the baby bonds. Um, so one of my favorite charts is from the Federal Reserve, and it's breakdown of wealth by income groups. So like the bottom 50% all of their wealth comes from a house. And so normally when you think about building wealth in the United States, um, you even said it. You're like, well, we'll get the kids a house. Um, yeah. Because we assume that that's going to go up in value over time because usually it does. But if you look at the top 10%, most of their wealth is in business ownership and equity, right? Like it's in stocks and it's in having a part of the business that they work for. And so I think we can look at that graph and like clearly see where some of the wealth inequality is coming from is that these people don't have ownership in the businesses they work for. And they also don't know how to invest in the stock market. And so baby bond is essentially like assigning a bond to a baby, like giving, you know, investing via that baby um, some money into the bond market. Market, and then that baby will own the bond, the bond will mature, the baby gets that money um, once the baby's like 30 or whatever. Uh, uh, and so I think that sort of model would be good. It's just like 
um, you know, setting people up right away with some sort of investment vehicle because a lot of people aren't invested in the stock market. They should be, in my opinion. Um, uh, And a lot of people are not invested in bonds uh, unless they have a 401k. And so I think if we want to think about wealth a little bit differently, we have to think about building wealth differently. Like part of the issue with the housing crisis is that we have all these people like not in my backyard who are like, listen, like if you're talking about building housing, like my house might go down in value. And there's studies showing that like if you do build housing, houses don't go up, down in value right mm. like there's a study out of new jersey that shows it, it that does, that does not happen um but people mm. think that it will right and you're essentially challenging their entire livelihood at that point mm-hmm. you're like i'm gonna make you worth nothing and it's like oh my yeah. gosh so of course they're going to be angry and so i think we have to reestablish. like number one housing should probably not be a speculative asset and then number That's two a... how do we establish people um some sort of wealth vehicle right away and mm. investing in u.s government debt is a great path forward um you know if the u.s debt defaults on that debt we have bigger issues at hand yeah. uh so it's it's relatively safe i, I think as well yeah i told you mentioned that um not a lot of you know not a lot of people are investing in the stock market which obviously shows the kind of distorted you know the narrow sample size of people that i you know that i hang out with and i think i remember reading a statistic that like 5% of households own 95% of U.S. stocks or something. I'm like, to me, when I saw that, I was like, well, that explains everything you need to know about like economic policy in the U.S., all right? Um, But um, I thought, I would have thought that with kind of the advent of of Robinhood and like lower commission tradings and just like, you know, bull, like pretty bullion markets over, um, I mean, I guess it depends what what time period, but um, that, that young younger folks are are more invest are are more receptive like when i was growing up you know like you start to like you had to call a broker to buy shares (laughs) and so it was not even like a thing that you could even really entertain as an 18 year old uh like oh i'm not gonna get a brokerage account with a physical human broker um but I guess, um, so it, my, my question is, are younger folks more afraid, like hesitant about equities or it's like the ad- adoption isn't there? I, I'm curious about the relationship between like long-term like boggle heads, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of gener- you know, Generation Z. Yeah, no, I think people are receptive. A lot of people got in via GameStop. And I think that's part of the problem is people got in during this like very speculative time. They were like, "Uh, why isn't my stock going up 5,000%? Hello. And so I think it's just like a lot of um, long-term, like people are not thinking in the long-term. So I'd say like people are definitely open and receptive to investing. Um, It's just like, how do we get them to do it sustainably? How do we understand what ETFs are? How do we understand what vehicle is best for them? Um, And that's tough, right? Because a lot of financial advisors, their whole business model is predicated on working with super rich people. Um, That's how they make money. And it's really like super rich people need help, but like so Mm. do younger people. And so I think that's like kind of the thing is... um, it's never been easier, but it's also never been harder to get the proper information about yeah. what you should be doing. Um, because yeah. the incentive of a company like Robinhood, and this is not slander, it's just the business model, um, is for them, for you to volume gamble. Yeah. 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 That, that makes a lot of sense. So my, my last, my last question for you is you, you've blazed this extremely unique trail and it, it's just, 
as a yeah, and outside now, I'm glad that I you know I'm honored that I get to meet you. It's just like so freaking cool and unique and and impactful. So just like kudos, kudos to you. Like the question, like are young people okay? It's like fuck yeah. <laughs> it's like we we have a perfect example like on the on the other side of this podcast. But I I, I suspect that you get um, asked often. You know, I don't know. Let's pick like um, someone graduating from college now for like career advice you know like what should i do what should i study and what kind of job should i build an audience like what's the most common kind of question that you get from a 21 year old 22 year old and kind of how do you what thoughtful answer do you give them um yeah so my little brother is actually trying to figure his stuff out right now um and he <laughs> his his question is always like how do i become successful and uh, that's like really tough to answer because there's so many layers to that question. Like, what does success look like to you? Um, what are you comfortable with doing in order to achieve that success? Like, how much do you want to work? Like, is success like maybe work-life balance to you? Um, and and so for me, like when people ask me that question, it's kind of like you know, focus on what you really care about. Like, I feel really lucky um, because I really love the Federal Reserve and really love economics. And Words um, that have rarely been <laughs> Well, I, I just, um, and I love like- And it shows. Thanks. Yeah, yeah no, um, I know. I'm glad to hear that. But like, I just love talking about that. And so I think like, I don't know if always working within your passion is the key, but like if you can find something that you truly care about and truly care about- um, beyond the eye like there's this story of uh i think it um shoot is it johnny k johnny cash on his oh, deathbed yeah. he was like telling the story i think on his deathbed he might have not been dying but he was telling the story about like how he went back to all of his old songs and removed the word i and they just sounded so much better because he removed himself from the equation right yeah. and so i think that's like a big part of it too is like how can you do something that isn't necessarily selfless because nothing is inherently a selfless act like there's always some sort of incentive for you in right. there but how can you do something that is in the service of other people because I think that's ultimately where we get the most fulfillment. Like how can yeah. you f tie together your passions and then tie to that together with um, helping people? And so that's yeah. what I say. And it's always really abstract and people are always like, but what do I do next? And mm -hmm. I'm always How's like, everybody? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's my. Yeah, no. And I feel very, very much of a kindred spirit to do with you in that regard. Kyla, this is just awesome. Thanks. I could talk to you for hours. I'm really <laughs> Glad. I, I'm I'm so excited for our listeners to to get to hear from you. Um, where is the best place for uh, for them to go check out all your wares? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Kyla Scan. I have a newsletter, Kyla.substack.com. I have a book coming out that you can pre-order on Amazon or at PenguinRandomHouse.com. But the book is titled "In This Economy." It comes out May 28th. Awesome. They will put all those links in the show notes. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much. This was so awesome. Thank you.